everyone. This is Brian coming at you with another interview um, on the Sacred Collective. This has been a hot minute uh, for doing this, and I will say I have someone here live in my own apartment, which I think is the first time, if I'm not mistaken, since before the pandemic. But luckily, this individual and I are both vaccinated and boosted, so we're good to go. I don't think we need to wear masks. That would that would mess up the sound. Anyway, super excited to uh, be here today with someone who's known me probably my whole adult life, probably 20 years, um, Dr. Tim Setapetaratna. Did I say it right? Yep. He did Sweet. pretty good. Now, now he just told me before we started recording, <laughs> he changed it legally to Senna because his name and like my name, I would, I would say most people hack up my last name, but I think you take the cake at how many people hack up your yep. name. Yep. So I got tired of it. So I just changed it. Well, Tim, thank you so much for being on today. Um, yeah. Where do we begin? How, when was the first time you met me? Let's just go there. Do you remember? You were probably, well, I not probably, you were in one of my classes. I think it was Old Testament introduction. And that would have been your freshman year? Probably. So when so, I was 18. Yep. And then I think I also had you for uh, Psalms and Wisdom Lit okay. class. So for people listening, uh, Tim... Tim and I go way back to college. He was my college professor, as we said, a couple classes. He was also um, my master's teacher, one of my master's teacher or professors. I want to say I took another Old Testament class because that's yeah. your background. Your you have an Old Testament PhD, right? So, um, so that, and then you are also my doctoral advisor. So you couldn't get rid of me, even if you wanted to. No, no. that's okay though. Yeah, I like working with you. And what's kind of cool now is, uh, well, thank you. Um, it's kind of surreal how our you were we were friends as like a teacher and student, and now we're just friends outside of school. And it's kind of funny because a couple mutual friends that we have, when I'm like, oh, I'm going to go get a drink with Tim, or we're just going to you know go do whatever, they're like, you can do that? Like, he was your <laughs> professor. And I was like... He's also a human being, so yep. we can we can also do that. So uh, for people listening to him, maybe just do you kind of have a cool background? Maybe just for a little bit, just kind of tell your background, where you're from, and how you grew up, and all that good stuff. Sure. Um, well, where to begin? I grew up in a very conservative Pentecostal home. I um, my parents, uh, my dad was a pastor of a certain sort, and then we also. Um, did some missionary work. So I grew up as a PK and an MK and then um, spent a lot of time in Minnesota in a couple of the big Assembly of God churches and then went to North Central as a student myself. And then while I was at North Central, um, realized I was not interested in being a pastor at all, although I probably could have done that just fine, but I just was not interested in it. So for me and my background, there weren't a lot of other choices. So I ended up deciding to go the academic route. And then right after I graduated from North Central, well, about a year later, started at Bethel Seminary as a student um, as well. 
And then after that, went to uh, Marquette University in Milwaukee to do my PhD. And then that's when, right about that time when I started, I started teaching as an adjunct at North Central. And then when I was done, moved back here to the Twin Cities and did a lot of adjuncting at North Central till I got fired from there. That's for, a fun story. Yeah, all the wrong reasons. And then... Um, Taught a lot at Bethel and was actually my real job was I was a librarian there. I um, kind of got that job by accident, which is another interesting story. I went to an interview thinking I was interviewing for one thing and found out halfway through the interview it was for something else. <laughs> but I guess I wasn't too bad because I still got the job. And so I uh, started doing library stuff and really enjoyed that. Plus, library was an easy way to stay uh, connected to schools in a time when they weren't really hiring a lot of people for schools. And then about, um, well, it's hard to believe now. I've been there almost a year, a little over a year and a half. Um, I switched over to uh, United Theological Seminary here in the Twin Cities to um, be their library director and also teach. So my job is technically um, a split uh, role. So I'm the library director and I also have a teaching, um, teaching, what do they call it? Assignment, I guess you'd say, and teach Hebrew Bible there. And you do some of the doctoral stuff, right? Some and, demon stuff. Yeah. Demon, demon stuff. No, yeah, I do. I do also teach the um, uh, doctor ministry research class, which is what I did at Bethel as well. And I haven't yet. Um, just it, you know, it takes time to develop those relationships. I haven't actually done any. Um, first reader advising for doctor ministry students at United yet, but I am second reader for quite a few people and I'm sure it's just a matter of time before you get bumped up. Actually, that's not true. Um, I am the first reader for one student who I won't name, but who you know well. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think I know where you're going with this, but we'll name, we'll have that person be anonymous. Um, yeah, and I don't know if you remember this, but when I was at North Central, I kind of, if I'm honest with myself, knew that I wasn't Pentecostal, knew I wasn't a good, you know, some was a God boy. Um, but I think it's, and you probably had a lot of people come up and talk to you over the years there, but I think one thing that stuck out into my head is you, you said something to the effect of, uh, you have what it takes. Like, I think you should go, you know, pursue a master's degree. And you were like, I don't really care where you go. But you can, you said something like you have this critical, you know, kind of aspect about you. You're asking questions. You're not just like, okay, my teacher told me that I'm okay with it. And then you did bring up Bethel and you also were like, hey, there, you don't have to do the, um, GRE test. And I was like, oh, okay. So it was because of your kind of like, I don't know, openness and I don't know, seeing something in me, some spark is kind of set me down the, master's and doctoral uh route so thank you for turning me on to education um not that it really has gotten me a lot of good jobs (laughs) but like i tell people it's not about jobs it's about you know educating yourself wanting to uh learn about all this stuff um can you talk a little bit about this might you know have to get the cobwebs out of your head a little bit but um a little birdie told me that some of your work is um dealing with like the Epic of Gilgamesh. And if you can tell people uh, what the Epic of Gilgamesh is, some people might know it. Some people might be like, what the hell is the Epic of Gilgamesh? Sure. 
So um, the Epic of Gilgamesh is a epic poem. So epics always mean poems, but there are poems about uh, the gods, the divine. And it is a poem that comes um, out of ancient Mesopotamia. Um, there's all kinds of different versions of it. There are dozens and dozens of versions, but the oldest ones we have are probably somewhere in the 3000 BCE range, give or take a little bit. So um, they are older then the the oldest ones are older than anything in the Bible, even if you are very conservative in your belief that, say, Moses wrote the Pentateuch, which, of course, he did not. But if that's your view, um, these these um, texts are older than that. And what I wrote uh, my dissertation on and what I did a lot of research on was how the Bible actually uses the Epic of Gilgamesh, um, quotes it, takes ideas, stories from it in all kinds of different places. And um, the story is great. I mean, it's a story about a guy named Gilgamesh who is a hero. It actually, I was telling one of my kids about a part of it the other day, and it has kind of this um, almost like a video game feel to it because it's just little episodes. Um, there's there's different tablets there that's broken up into tablets and there, each each tablet is its own little story, and so it's kind of like um, not really superhero, but they're demigods, and so they do all kinds of strange and interesting things, and they're on a quest, and much much like um, uh, maybe like the Zelda Chronicles, if you will, and some of those kinds of video games. So what you're trying to say is that Christianity and some of the early biblical writers took stuff that predates Christianity and put it into their own scriptures. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. So, and I'm just kind of being sarcastic here, if people can't <laughs> tell. My biggest issue, especially with understanding scripture and being in Bible college and seminary is, you know, people always are like, well, it's in the Bible, I'm going to believe it. And, you know, these, you know, the creation story and the flood story and all these things people are like well it's in the bible like we were this it was like firsthand accounts or blah 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 and pretty much what the epic of gilgamesh predates i think you said are you know the christian kind of understanding by at least a couple centuries or more more than a couple centuries and i just gave a talk for dba which is what i do online for church and at bryant lake bowl that so much of what we believe in in christianity is so influenced by other religions, by other people group, uh, that when people are like, well, I just believe the Bible is the, you know, inerrant word of God. And it's like, you don't even understand, you know, how these books of the Bible were, were put together, you know, very Hellenistic, you know, um, influence Babylonian religions and things like that. So I always thought, like, when you first started telling me that when I was in college, my little conservative Pentecostal brain <laughs> was so angry because I was like, who does this guy think he is telling me that, you know, this biblical story isn't real? And you never said it's not real, but to say that, you know, these early Jewish people were the first ones to kind of have this story, just history will show you that it doesn't. And and that, um, and you even said it's probably with multiple groups of people, multiple, you know, religious people or, or cultures having stories like this probably is a good indication that 
something like this probably did happen when people, multiple religions and groups of people wrote it, correct? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it, it depends on what you mean by it happened. I think, you know, um, all of these different ancient Near Eastern groups had a very similar view of the world, and they all seem to have flood stories as an example. Um, was it a universal flood? Of course not. But we know that um, the Mesopotamian area flooded often because of the Euphrates and Tigris rivers, and those floods would have been very catastrophic for the people who were there. Um, one of the things that's really hard for us to imagine, well, at least me to imagine, is that most people in that time would never have traveled more than 10 or 15 miles away from their home unless they unfortunately became a slave or something like that. So if they were captured and drugged somewhere. And so when your world is 10 or 15 miles in um, uh, diameter, uh, when you have a flood that is pretty big in, then it seems like a worldwide flood because your world is pretty small. And that doesn't mean that they weren't sophisticated in their thinking. We often make that false assumption, but it's just simply that they didn't have the same ways of thinking about the world that we do. And so for them, all of those cultures during that time, the Babylonians and the Sumerians, and of course, uh, the, the Israel, Israelite uh, tribes, the Egyptians, they all had flood stories of different kinds and they all have their various takes on them, but they, um, they all kind of point to the same ideas. And that's to me, what's really important about understanding the Bible is that it's less about, did this happen? And more about what does, what, what are the, what are these different groups of people trying to say about their, um, their experience with the divine? their encounters with the divine. And you might remember from class way back when that I used a word very carefully because I did, I didn't want to get fired. That was not the plan. Um, but, um, so I used the word very carefully, but the word myth, um, and myth is often misunderstood. The word just simply means it's a story about how humans and the divine interact. That's all myth means. So it's mm -hmm. it's not about truth or not truth. It's about a story. So anyone who says God, uh, you know, spoke to me today, or God protected me today, or something like that, you're you're telling a modern day myth, and and it's not that it's not true. It's just that's what the genre is. And so all of the myths of the ancient world were important because they explained how people interacted with the divine. And we can. My bias is is that we can learn a lot about our humanity through studying those and learning about those. Well, I feel like I'm going back to class. I know. With, with, my, with my Old Testament. No, <laughs> this is free, guys. I'll say this when people uh, drop the hammer with like biblical stuff or um, theology. I always tell listeners, hey, you're getting this for free because so many groups out there are like, hey, take my class online for like 50 bucks and Tim's giving it to you for free. That's right. So 
Why not? Um, I you did, can take my class. You can, yeah. Like, uh, prob- I you suppose know, it would cost you something. Would but. cost you something. Not unless you uh, <laughs> I don't get any of that audited it. Um, I was smart and audited some of your class. <laughs> I think that my master's level class, I audited it because I was like, well, I took this in my undergrad. I'll just take it again because I was already done with all my required classes. And you were like, sure, you can be in my class. You probably didn't even register, did you? I have my ways. I just have my ways, Tim. I'm not going to. I was on that camp, not as long as you, but, you know, 11 years. Um, Let's see if we can pivot a little bit. Um, Where, if I can say this, uh, where are you maybe spiritually now or faith-wise now? Because I feel like a lot of the people that listen to Sacred Collective, um, kind of part of the community that that we've built, are a lot of what they call ex-evangelicals or they're, dealing with deconstruction and we've talked about this, you know, in multiple times um, when our paths have crossed at parties and whatnot about deconstruction. But um, it's just fascinating to kind of hear your story. And if you're okay with it, just, you know, telling our listeners a little bit of where you're at currently um, through all that. Yeah. I think um, it's interesting to me. The word deconstruction always makes me smirk a little bit because I probably, I was 10 years ahead of the game in that sense. And I didn't know it was cool back then. (laughs) Me too. Me too. Um, There's a word for this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I knew the word deconstruction because I, when I was at Bethel as a student, um, I was really fascinated with postmodernity and Derrida, who was really the guy who was one of the big deconstructionists and, and working through that with some of the existential philosophy stuff as well. And I think at that time, my commitments to the Christian faith as a whole were pretty strong. And so, I was deconstructing of a certain sort. And I, and today, often when people say deconstruction, I think it it means a, something a little bit different. But um, that's when my um, really big start to what does it mean to have an authentic faith um, kind of started. At that point, a lot of the answers didn't work really well. I think one of the big stories I like to talk about in my own uh, journey is when I was a PhD student at Marquette, um, the first class that I took, um, I had a couple of classes, but the kind of one class that was the most important was a Hebrew Bible class on the Psalms. And you wouldn't think the Psalms would be, you know, it's kind of an easy way to get into stuff, but it was um, day one of class. I remember, I mean, I'll never forget this, sitting in class. It was a small class of four or five of us because it was a doctoral seminar. And the teacher who ended up being my uh, doctoral advisor, he says, well, let's start with Hebrew one, or I, I mean, uh, Psalms one, and well, let's read it, you know, and let's read it in Hebrew. And so I panicked, of course, because it's like, do I know enough Hebrew? And we're working through it. And and then he said, well, you know, this is clearly the P source. And, and, and I'm like, what in the world is this? And I, at the time, I kind of knew what it meant, but what it meant is he was talking about how the Pentateuch, so the first five books of the Bible, got put together. And I had been taught up to that point, both at North Central and Bethel, that Moses wrote uh, those books and anything other than that was sort of a liberal conspiracy to destroy your faith. Yeah. 
And so after class, I uh, went kind of a little bit nervous and talked to talked to the teacher, who is one of the kindest people I've ever met in my life. And and I said, you know, I'm hi, I'm Tim, and you were talking about this, and how do I get up to speed on some of this stuff? And he smirked at me, and he said, Oh, you're the you're the Bethel student, and so apparently I'd already caused some conversation <laughs> prior to my showing up in class. And he's like, Well, okay, here you got to do all this other reading, and you're going to have to work really hard, and you're going to be doing two classes instead of one because you got to get up to speed. And so I spent the the semester reading all about source theory, which is this idea that the Bible was compiled over a long period of time by different groups of people at different points in time and history. And I was, I had decided when I was going to start my PhD that I was going to go in with an open mind. Like I was just going to take things at face value and I wasn't going to try to argue with anyone. I just wanted to learn and I would deal with what I needed to deal with later. And so that's what I did. And so the whole semester I did this reading and I, I mean, I just about killed myself cause I was really literally doing two classes for the price of one. And I was doing several other classes as well. So the last day of the semester, I had this idea in my head, okay, I've done all this reading. I'm going to go get all the evangelical authors, all the commentaries written by evangelicals and find out what are the, what are the counterpoints, you know? And, um, so the last day of the class or the semester when everyone else is turning books into the library, I went and checked out 20 books and, um, it was like, this is my Christmas break is what I'm doing. And so the first day of Christmas break, I sat down and I thought I'm going to do this. And this is not a joke in three hours, I had gone through the 20 best evangelical commentaries books on this this topic because they didn't actually have anything to say. Hmm. They just said that no one believes the theory was often what they said or it's not taken seriously by scholars, which, you know, is just not true. And so I think in that moment, I had one of those aha moments that really impacted my faith because... It was a moment of saying, okay, this thing that I've sort of believed a lot of my life isn't working. But it wasn't like I lost my faith or anything that day. It was just like this big issue. Well, then fast forward over a decade where I was sitting on all those issues, working through them, trying to figure them out. I think uh, two things happened that were, again, really big. One was when Trump got elected and found out that 81% of evangelicals voted for Trump. And at that moment, I, something I knew, I mean, it didn't surprise me. It wasn't like, oh, you know, I'm really surprised by this. But it was more the deep down in my gut sinking feeling of the realization that evangelical Christians actually didn't care about what they believed. It was more about power it was more about cultural influence. It was more about white supremacy and racism and and homophobia. Those were the things that they cared about. It wasn't about character. It wasn't about belief in the good or virtue or any of that. And so that was the moment, I think, when I realized evangelicalism was pretty much dead to me in a lot of ways. And that was about the same time 
at Bethel that I was having some issues with, and I use the term really loosely here, um, some colleagues who were trying to pressure me into teaching a particular way. And every time that I said, well, let's have a conversation, they just used power politics to silence me. And eventually they just took away all my classes, which not only hurt me just in a personal way, but it hurt me financially and it hurt me, you know, and being able to provide for my family and things like that. And again, it was like, we're not really interested in truth. We're not interested in dialogue. It's just, if you don't say what we want, we're going to take it all away. And so today I think it's, it's an interesting mix for me because I don't feel like I've given up on faith, but faith has kind of been, I don't know what the right word is. Kind of, it's, it's not been, it's not been front and center a lot lately. And it's been trying to say, what are the other parts of life that, I pushed aside because of faith and that now I want to explore and understand better. And then maybe at some point in time, we can figure out how to bring them all back together. So I don't know if that makes sense. But. Yeah, it does. Um, well, I think kind of what was popping through my head when you were saying that one, thank you, by the way, for kind of kind of getting to the real and gritty of, of Tim and where that was at. And it's sometimes people like are okay talking about it and sometimes people aren't so um thank you for saying that um i didn't i didn't i don't think i even knew that fully uh so thank you um well i i mean i think one of the things i've decided of late is that i'm really working on my own authenticity you know and i realized that for most of my life i wasn't fully authentic so it wasn't like i was living a lie or anything like that mm-hmm. i was never uh, hypocrisy really bothered me and I tried my hardest never to be a hypocrite. And I mean, I fail all the time, but, but lately I've decided that part of being authentic is just owning those experiences. It's, it's if evangelicalism is true and, and good and helpful, then it should be able to stand up to the critique and, in my experience of late, it hasn't. It has failed miserably. And so I just want to own that for myself personally, but then also to help, to help other folks with that. Because if we're trying to, you know, it's kind of like at a certain point, you know, when you have an old car and you keep fixing it up and hoping it'll go another hundred miles. And then there comes a day when you realize, you know what, it's, it's, this car just ain't going to get us there mm-hmm. and it's time to find a new car. <laughs> oh, I've had, <laughs> I've had that with my cars before. And, it's a good analogy. And it's, and it's a, you know, it's a hard day, right? Because you've been putting all this effort and resource and energy into this car and maybe you like the car and you just realize, you know what, it's just not going to get me there and it's time to find a new car. And, you know, sometimes that's, you know. I guess maybe I'm too emotionally attached to my cars. <laughs> Faith is like used cars, everyone. That's what it is. No, uh, that, yeah. Does that make pastors oh. used cars? <laughs> no, let's not no, go. Let's stop. Because that could be a long rabbit trail. No, um, yeah, and I kind of going back to deconstruction, like uh, I've joked with you in previous conversations where I feel like I started deconstructing in the popular sense 
you know, over 10 years ago, 15 years ago before really. And like you've said with Jacques Derrida, like the idea of deconstruction has been around since the fifties or sixties. And now it's, it's, it's so funny that how cyclical history is and, you know, church things like back in the sixties, it was the God of dead, you know, God is dead, which is really what we're going through now is like the new deconstruction movement is really just like, well, you know, we need new language for Jesus. We need new ways of doing church and Christianity and all this stuff. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's what a lot of God of dead theologians were saying, like Tillich and, and, you know, a ton of other people. Um, it's just kind of like now people who weren't, who haven't went to seminary or know that stuff don't realize that. But then I look back knowing what I did, you know, even when did I start seminary 2006? I still, I thought I was coming in as this, like, oh, I'm kind of more progressive and liberal. And then I, you know, and Bethel used to be, and you can agree with this, used to be a lot more, uh, ecclesiologically diverse with different denominations. Now they've made this kind of line in the sand of they're more just Baptist. But I remember having, you know, um, other students, friends of mine that were Catholic, you know, Presbyterian, Lutheran, you know, the whole gamut and even evangelical. But I even remember hearing from more conservative professors, just the different understandings of just certain theological things and philosophical things. And then I course with me when I have it, like it's like my brain will get caught up on something. And the big thing, what really did it for me was hell and the idea of hell. Cause being, being raised Pentecostal, like we were, it was always like hell, 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 you know, it's this final thing, you know, you got to be a Christian, uh, and you know, you got to live this pure life, blah, blah, blah. And then when I really got down to it, I, I had this epiphany one day where I was like, you know, if this God is all loving and all powerful, like we say God is who, whatever God is. And, you know, he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. But no matter what you go through in life, A through Z, you know, we can all just imagine horrible scenarios. Then if you don't repent, even if these bad things happen to you, you're going through suffering, so on and so forth. But if you don't believe in Jesus the way we say as a denomination or a church, then you're going to burn in hell for all of eternity. And I remember, I don't know what class it was in, and this kind of put that, like, so, so, uh, the scarlet letter on my chest, front and center, was I was like, I, I don't know if it was Dr. Lawrence or Dr. Na or Roberts. I think if it was Roberts, he would be okay with it. Uh, <laughs> but I said, if we believe God is like you say he is, then God is worse than Hitler. Because I said, Hitler killed six million Jews and, and you know, gypsies and, you know, homosexuals and, and disabled people, which is, anybody will say in history that is horrible and an atrocity. But then I said, but then God's worse because that means he's killed billions. He sent billions of people to hell. And I remember the look of just pure disdain and horror um, that people gave me. But once I said that, once I fully kind of orated that out of my own head and out in kind of like the sphere of like, oh shit, this is, this is out here for people to listen to. I just felt this weight come off my shoulders to be like, I think my whole life up to that point, I never believed it. And even when I was a little kid, like, I don't know if you remember 
the play Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. Um, which to, yeah. to listeners, uh, it's a very Pentecostal. I think it was created in Canada by some Pentecostals, but it was literally this play that people did during, you know, Passion Week, um, of all that stuff of literally, you know, these events of people like dying. Uh, you know, that some of them was like somebody OD'd on drugs, another person died, you know, a group of people died in a car accident, whatever. And if they were Christians, they had the scene where they went to heaven. And then if they weren't Christians, then then they would go to hell. They made a movie. Shameless point here. My grandma showed me that. Rest in peace, grandma. When I was six years old, <laughs> she showed me that movie. Because we were like, let's have a movie night and have popcorn. She's like, sure, Brian, let's do it. So she showed me that movie, which literally scared the hell out of me. And she showed me the Thief in the Night movie yeah. from the 70s. But I think with that all this understanding about hell and even my family to this day, they, they are so mad that that was the first thing to go. It wasn't like other theologies or whatever, but it was this concept of hell. And now that I have a child myself, I'm like, there's nothing that my child could do that my daughter could do that would want me to be away from her for all of eternity, which uh, I don't even know what eternity is. It's like an understandable word. And, you know, and I say that to people, I said, especially for Christians who have children, you know, you're pretty much saying that you believe in a God that if you don't believe in this God the right way, then this he or she is going to be away from you for all of eternity because you didn't believe the right way. And I was like, that's not love. That's torture. That's propaganda. And then. Then all floodgates broke yeah, from, I think, from there. I think you probably more than once came and sat at the reference desk, and we had those conversations. I remember those. Yeah, it was free therapy. It was, <laughs> was it three free, free, free therapy? therapy sessions? So I think for me, it's interesting. For you, it was that the whole hell, heaven, hell thing. And for me, one of the big doctrines that I struggle with was the sin doctrine, the doctrine of sin. And I, I grew up and, you know, it's still very much a part of the Calvinistic, um, reform tradition that sin is a breaking of God's law, you know, so the whole point is we got to figure out what God's law is and then we got to follow God's law. And for me, sin, uh, became, <laughs> this is weird to say, but sin became an obsession <laughs> to try to figure it out. I need to sin more. I need to no, sin more. Well, you know, and Luther, I mean, Luther said that. He said, you know, Luther was famous for saying, if, if you're going to sin, you might as well sin boldly. Right, and, right. and I think for me, the issue was more about, um, I realized that breaking laws didn't really work really well because laws are always contextual, right? I mean, when when you are stealing, for example, you know, it's always an easy example. If you're stealing to feed your family, that's probably not immoral. And so even though it's breaking a law, it you are following a much more important moral code of feeding your family. And I don't think any ethicist or theologian would say that that's wrong to do. And so um, laws are are completely contextual. And so as I started to realize that, I thought, well, then the definition of sin, it works if you're a white male in Europe. You know, if you're Calvin and you have a white 
uh, community where there's no diversity whatsoever and you're in charge, it's easy to say sin is breaking the law because then the law always represents what you want anyways. But in our pluralistic, diverse world today, that that just doesn't work. And so then I started to move to a more relational understanding of sin, that sin was somehow a violation of relationship and things like that. But my psychology, you know, you said therapy, my psychology problem was that for God to create a world in which sin is inevitable is really abusive. So, you know, one of the examples I like to use that it's, it's reductionistic and I know that it doesn't, it doesn't work completely, but when you have your two year old child and you, if you put a plate of cookies down on the table, and you draw attention to the cookies and you say, hey, here's some cookies, but you can't have a cookie. You know, you're not allowed to have a cookie. And then you walk away. That child, if that child's hungry, uh, most likely the child's going to eat the cookie because they don't under, they're like from a developmental point of view, they don't understand consequence yet. They're not old enough to understand that. They don't understand that there's a consequence for things. And then if you punish that child really um, severely, you're actually in the fault because again, developmentally that child can't be responsible for that. There's no way that that can happen. And we know that from psychology. And yet a lot of our, our doctrines around sin are really pretty similar to that, that God created, you know, in, in the, in the way you know, it's, it's presented. God created humanity in this way and then says, don't do these things, but be aware of them, but don't do them. And then when you do them, you're hurting me, you're violating something about me. Well, that's just abuse. And it's not, it's not cool. And if God is the parent, then it's an abusive relationship. And so the idea that we as humans are supposed to relate to God and the divine in that way really became a problem for me. And then once you, you know, for me at least because of the way my weird brain works, once you kind of start talking about sin in that way, then things like the atonement and Jesus death on the cross and sacrifice and all of those things start to change. And then you, you know, once you, kind of change that, then questions about heaven and hell change. And so it was kind of, for me, it was kind of like a domino effect, but, and I know it was similar to you with the, with the question of hell. It just was kind of a different domino that started the process. Well, yeah. And I've actually had a couple of people on, um, with, on the interviews in the past where they actually said the, you know, when people talk about eternity and just recently I've had a number of people on my wife's side, family pass away. Um, and it's so funny where these people say that they'll take the Bible 100% serious and, you know, it's the inerrant word of God. And, you know, when these loved ones have passed away, they're like, well, they're with Jesus right now. And it's funny because I'm like, well, if you look in First Thessalonians, you know, 4, it literally says that they're not. They're not in hurting. They're not in pain. But the, the whole idea of just this, Cognitive dissonance, this um, ignorance is bliss of we don't understand eternity, we don't understand the afterlife, but as Christianity, especially in evangelicalism, we 
we just jump over. We make so many uh, like logical gymnastics kind of things. And once I started realizing that and realizing like we don't know where we go when we die. Um, people who've said, you know, you countless people have like, I've died, went to hell, and <laughs> I've died, went to heaven. Like that's all to make a quick buck. And we've seen countless stories, you know, have been debunked. Um, but I remember talking to people even here and in myself, just the idea of eternity, the idea of a heaven or hell causes me to panic, causes me, you call it existential dread, call it whatever, because I don't think as human beings, however we were created who created us, we were supposed to even think about that. I think we're right. supposed to think, and, and even going back to scripture, there's verses that's like, don't worry about tomorrow because you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring you. Worry about today. The day that you have today right here uh, that we're living, worry about that. And I think so much within evangelicalism, you know, they would say hell and they would say love and all these things and they would give scripture verses. And then I would look at another verse in the Bible that totally twists what they said out of context. And so the older I got, I was like, I don't think, first of all, like you said, everything's in context and the church is really bad at putting things in context, but not just that, but I'm like, I kind of sat back and I was like, we don't know as much shit as we think we know. And if we don't know as much stuff as we think we know, then maybe we shouldn't believe in it, you know, hook, line and sinker. And then, like you said, like hell was that tipping point that was domino and then I was like, well, why am I praying all the time? Uh, why, you know, like, you know, why if it, you know, I looked at porn when I was 16 that I had to go run and pray because I thought I was going to go to hell, even though that's completely normal to do. Or, you know, I got drunk when I was 21 and, you know, God doesn't want me to be drunk. But then I was like, but I was also going through a lot of shit <laughs> in my life. And is God really mad at that? And countless people in the Bible have been drunk. And God used them. And, <laughs> right? I mean, well, yeah. Yeah. And so, like, all these things were going, kind of going through my head where I was, like, at the end of the day and where I'm at currently is, like, I tell people, I believe in the teachings and message of Jesus. Like, I do. I don't care about Peter or Paul or the Old Testament prophets. I'm not saying that they're all bad. But I really think that Jesus was this sage, this prophet, this holy leader and I tried to mimic that, but I said all this other stuff about church, about theology, about doctrine and dogma. I'm like, literally where I'm at today, I'm like, it's all bullshit because we really don't know. And, you know, we, we in, in, I think it's, it's not funny, but I guess even in my own life, like we don't pray over meals that much. We don't, you know, go to church on Sundays. I mean, I do my pub church. You know, we don't sit down and read the Bible together as a family, but I think my family loves and tries to care for people as much as we possibly can. And sometimes I'm like, I think sometimes reading the Bible, doing all these things that quote unquote the church tells us to do actually gets us sidetracked from how we were really supposed to be and living in community with one another. That, yeah. I just went off on a that's all right preaching tangent there. No, I mean, I, I think when I, I remember when in, growing up and in, especially in high school at the church I was at, there was that kind of snide, um, uh, sort of pretentious, we're better than everyone else attitude of 
talking about how a lot of people think that if they do more good things than bad things, then they'll end up in heaven and, and how it's like, well, they're all so silly and stupid because they just need to ask Jesus into their heart. And recently I was thinking about that a little bit and I realized that, you know, the idea of doing more good than bad in your life is actually a pretty noble idea mm-hmm. and it's actually a pretty good ideal. And the, that the making fun of that to say, well, I just asked Jesus into my heart. So now I can do whatever I want, or I don't have to care about the environment or I don't have to care about my neighbor. What is that? What kind of a faith is that? You know, what kind of a belief system says that, I ascribe to these three or four beliefs, but it doesn't actually impact how I treat other people. And I think that's kind of for me was the whole, the whole Trump thing, you know, with, with the folks who really honestly think that a set of beliefs that I can sign my name. To, I mean, literally I'm just signing my name to it somehow gets me into heaven. I mean, it's transactional. It's, it's, it's consumerist and it's really interesting. Like, um, Richard land, who is the, I don't know exact position anymore, but he's the, one of the Southern Baptist leaders just last week came out with a letter to evangelicals about, uh, the January 6th insurrection stuff. And he was saying how evangelicals as a whole have been very quiet and unwilling to talk about it. And they've been unwilling to acknowledge that most of what um, was happening was about lies about the election and things like that. And he, he basically called everyone out and said, you know, if we're evangelicals and we say that lying is wrong, Anytime we allow this lie to go unchallenged, we're, we're, we're complicit. We're liars too. And I thought that was pretty brave of him. He's going to get in a lot of trouble for saying that. But that's been kind of my experience over the last, oh, I don't know, half a dozen years or so. It's like, I'm just tired of, I'm tired of that. I was talking to a former Bethel professor friend, colleague the other day, we had lunch together and I was saying, you know, I'm a, I think I've, I used to be as a teacher, I used to tell students when they were having their existential crisis, you know, their angst or whatever, Mm -hmm. included Brian included. And I know I've told you this, Brian. And so I'm going to apologize for saying it to you. Um, I, I would often say that the issue or the problem is that you just haven't done enough reading and work to solve whatever problem you're dealing with. And Uh, you you need a better theology, right? You need a better (laughs) theology. You need to see it in a better light, things like that. And I don't know that I don't, I, I still think that way. I think, I think, but what I realized for myself, and this is the part where I probably have to apologize to you and everyone else is that I've come to a place where I'm so just, 
tired of it. I don't feel like doing the work anymore. <laughs> you know, I mean, it gets to a point where you just say, I'm doing this work over and over and over again and trying to solve these problems. And at a certain point, it's sort of like, do I really want to try to solve this problem anymore? And I've kind of found for myself sometimes recently that when a problem of that sort of theological sort comes up, it's like, yeah, I'm just too tired or too probably too lazy <laughs> I guess, to try to solve it. And, and that idea that we can solve everything through intellectual pursuit, I think is something that I'm realizing for me and, and probably in a way that I was unfair to others at, at different times in my, my career um, is no longer the case. And so when I think about what does it mean to live a good life, you know, when you talk about following the teachings of Jesus, I think that's one one way to live a good life, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and to follow what Jesus said as an example is a way to really care for other people. And whether you call yourself a Christian or a Jesus follower or not, the principles, generally speaking, are are um, sound communal principles that would make our world a better place. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like I'm, uh, in a lot of the same ways as you with, I mean, just here in my own apartment, my bookshelves are full of theological books. I've tried to get more novels (laughs) over the years and get rid of some of my theological books, but, and I do think reading and researching is is helpful, but there's other times where I'm just like, I just want to live in the now. I live in the present and I know it's kind of a cliche, but you know, carpe diem, like seize the day of, if kind of was like a mantra of mine is like, I want to seize the day that I have. Cause I don't know if I'm going to be here tomorrow. I don't know if I'm going to be here 20 years from now. So I want to just live life to the fullest. You know, if I'm like, if I want to have a cocktail at 10 in the morning, I'm going to have a cocktail at 10 in the morning, like we're doing now. Um, <laughs> or if, if I want, you know, to go out and get a, greasy ass hamburger from mcdonald's not all the time but you know every now and then so i'm it's like i'm gonna do these things and i'm not saying that uh we should go like that means i'm gonna go out and cheat on my wife or go you know rob a bank because i want to live in the moment but i think from where i'm coming from with just being in church my whole life and i said to my mom one time a number of months ago and i i you know, before she freaked out, I was like, just hear me out. As I said, I'm kind of frustrated that you never really gave me the chance to believe what I wanted to believe on my own. And she was like, well, what do you mean? I was like, from when I was born until I was an adult, like I was a Christian, quote unquote. Yes, I didn't ask Jesus into my heart, but I'm like, I played baby Jesus at, at the church where he was until I was like three or four. And then, I mean, I was just in youth or in children's church and did puppet ministry and did all the youth stuff. Went to uh, Friday nights. I would go to intercessory prayer meetings at like a 15 year old. I mean, how nerdy is that? Um, yeah. And been, been there. Done yeah. That. And yeah. so it was like, I never had the opportunity to just, you know, be a normal teenager to I never went to parties. I never went to any of this stuff. And I think kind of some of us who have dealt with that now are in our thirties and forties are like, yeah, we can go party now <laughs> and no one can tell us that we can drink or not. And, and I've, I've, I've had that mentality, but I, and I said it to my mom 
not it's saying like you raised me bad because I, I think I had a great upbringing and my parents were open minded on a lot of things. But I was like, I never gave, I was never given the opportunity to be like, yeah, believe in Jesus if you want, but here are all these other paths. And my wife and I have said that to my own daughter when she gets older and asks questions like, hey, this is how, where we believe and where we fall. And I mean, I hope my daughter doesn't turn into a fundamentalist Christian, but if that's where she wants to go, I'm going to support her. If she wants to be a Buddhist or, uh, you know, you know, be in the Jewish tradition, or if she wants to be an atheist, I'm going to support my child in whatever they want. And I think that's where kind of we're at in a society now a, a lot is the younger generations are like, I never was given the opportunity to believe anything but this. And now we're kind of trying to take that back. And I think that's part of deconstruction as well of, of some people deconstruct because they just, it doesn't work for them and great. And I mean a lot of other and another person I'm interviewing here soon in the next couple of weeks. It's we, we've deconstructed. So we we're starting to reconstruct to, to turn something into whether that's faith, whether that's a new way of faith or spirituality for us. But I think for me and a lot of other people who listen to the podcast and are part of this like uh, little online community that I do is I think a lot of it is we like to deconstruct because first of all, we want to get all that toxic stuff out of our mind, the propaganda, the control, but also is we never really got to choose, as I said, choose to what we want to believe. It was kind of forced down our throat. And then once you're in, it was almost cultish. Yeah. Uh, and I tell people a lot of times, I'm like, the, the AG is a great baby denomination. It gives you the sustenance and that, like, the, like the church breast milk, so to say. But then when you can walk and think and start talking on your own, it really starts to fall off because you're, they're like, no, you can't do this. No, you can't do that. You can't do this. And you're like, but am I, am I not supposed to grow? Am I not supposed to, uh, kind of spread my wings and live my life? My my oldest son a couple of years ago, he um, he was in college and he came home. I forget for what break it was, and he uh, got this really serious look on his face one night. We were sitting and just talking, and he got this really serious look on his face, and he said, "He said, Dad, I, I got to tell you something, and this is really important. And I know you're not going to be super happy about it, but you know you've you've always said that." We need to figure out our own faith and know which way we're going to go. And he said, I've decided to become an evangelical Christian. And then he paused and then he just started laughing as hard as he could. He said, wouldn't that be the worst thing that could ever happen to you? And for a half a second, I had thought he was being serious and he, he thought that was the funniest joke. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I mean, I guess. And when we do offer that as an option for our kids, then we do have to live with that. I think one of the things that has really uh, kind of stuck with me, and I haven't done a lot of reading on it yet, but it's an area I'm going to in the future, is the, you know, for good and bad. I mean, the Greek Greek philosophers for good and bad, I mean, they, they had their issues. But one of the things they talked a lot about was the, living the good life. And the good life wasn't about being rich and doing whatever you wanted. It was about living a life that was um, worth living and enjoying, enjoying the good things, but then also being able to sort of 
weather the storms of life with with um, dignity and 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 staying true to your values, whatever they were. And of course, they they worked hard to define what those values were. But the idea of a good life, I think, when you said the carpe diem, I kind of smiled because I did my dissertation on the the verses in the Bible that are often called the carpe diem verses in Ecclesiastes. And, and it's all about that, that good life idea that we find ourselves, you know, in a particular place in a particular time. Sometimes we have some control over that, but for a lot of us in a lot of situations, we don't, you know, we were born in a particular place. We have a certain socioeconomic um, reality and unless we get lucky and win the lottery or something we're probably not going to move too much outside of that for most of us i mean mm-hmm. the idea of the american dream is you know pretty pretty unrealistic and not true for 99 percent of us um, and so the the idea that we can live a life that is good just where we're at by valuing certain things and and um, being grateful for what we have, I think, is a really big part of the philosophical and wisdom traditions. And I think for a lot of us in that deconstruction process, you know, wherever wherever along the um, spectrum we find ourselves, it's interesting to me that that seems like. Um, the positive place. A lot of deconstruction is unfortunate, and I get it because I've been there, and I probably, in some ways, am still there to a certain degree. It's really negative, right? You know, we're we're deconstructing, so we're doing this sort of work of saying, "I don't like this, and I don't want this, and I don't, I don't see the value in this." But I think the flip side of that coin that can be really helpful is the idea of the good life that by embracing some of the things that are good about life, they don't have to be Christian or they don't have to be a religious thing mm-hmm. to to value them. I mean, you don't have to be a Christian to value your family. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be a Christian to think that the environment needs to be taken care of and that we can enjoy the natural world around us. Now, Christianity certainly can inform us of those things if that's what you want to do. And there's, you know, nothing inherently wrong about that. But the idea that a particular faith, and since we're kind of in our context talking about the Christian faith has some sort of special corner on the market of good things is, is pretty ridiculous. I mean, you know, the idea that we're the, you know, if, if we're Christians, we're the only people who have all the right answers. That's pretty pretentious and pretty, um, unfair. And so to me, one of the things I hope that we can see more of as this deconstruction process goes is that I run into a lot of folks who are kind of angry post or ex evangelicals. And I don't blame them. I'm angry too a lot of the time about a lot of different things. So no judgment there. And yet I would like at some point in my life, and I hope that others too, that I can move past some of that anger and frustration to a place of saying, no, life, life is what it is. And yet there can be good in that and that that can bring joy and happiness. Um, whether it's within 
a faith context or not doesn't really matter because faith faith should enhance our lives and if it's not that's okay then you just kind of you know get rid of what's not enhancing your life but being angry has its place in time and so no judgment there but at the same time hopefully that anger is moving us somewhere that is productive rather than just sitting in the anger because ultimately it's it's just us right it's our life and we have to decide what to do with it right and i think my frustration with the evangelicalism that i was raised in you know most of the people on my both sides of my family my mom and dad's sides are evangelical my wife's family um and that's fine if that's where they want to be that's great but i've gotten in so many conversations with them over the years since i've deconstructed or where i'm at in my faith now and time and time again it's it's always like well we're just going to read the bible and listen to our pastors and who are we to ask questions and whatever and i'm like it's your right as a human being you know to ask questions or if something you know is off base and i always kind of tell my mom i'm like you and dad always told me to question things not question authority just to be an ass about it but to be like hey that doesn't really make sense why but I said, so I can ask my boss if my boss does something I don't agree with. I can go up to my boss and be like, hey, why did you do it this way? In a respectful way. But I said, but when it comes to the, like our church or our faith, it's like we can never, you know, it's like we can never do that. It's like, oh, no, that's taboo. That's that's wrong. Why are you doing that? And kind of what you said, though, too, and I'm piggybacking off of this and it just kind of jumped in my head is, you know, I've said this before on, on DBA, but like my brother-in-law passed away um, unexpectedly, you know, right before Thanksgiving, was only 39, and him and his family were a part of this evangelical church plant in, in western Wisconsin, and the pastor's wife, um, and they were North Central alums, um, I'm not going to say who they are, but um, they were, you know, the wife came up to me and was like, Brian, how are you, you know, how are you doing, How you know, I know... Josh is your brother-in-law and, you know, we were friends, but like you were family. And I was like, yeah, it's, it's, it's affecting me. And, you know, he was my closest, I would say, in-law. Like we had just a lot in common with our love of sports and music and things like that. But I actually went back to the Bible. You know, everyone's looking at the Bible to try to make sense, but it was, you're, you know, you're teaching with like the Old Testament. So I went back and said to her about Ecclesiastes and Psalms. And I was like, well, you know, this sucks and I'm gutted. I mean, I'm sure not as much as my wife and, and her siblings and her, and, and, you know, his mom. But I was like, you know, Ecclesiastes makes this quite clear. You know, there's a time to be born and there's a time to die. And, it, and I said, it's called wisdom literature for a reason because there's wisdom in it. Um, and I said, I don't know why he had to die. I, I'm not happy that he did. But the Bible pretty much laid it out that every one of us is going to be born and every one of us is going to die and we don't know when that's going to be. And and I said, so, you know, when someone's like, oh, I'm going to live till I'm 90. Well, you don't know. You might live till 39. And not only that, but I said, I looked at her and I said, the Bible gives us lament. There's so many, like I said, growing up in the evangelical church, I said, you will never hear a sermon on lament. You're never going to hear a sermon on doubt. You're never going to hear a sermon on the the sufferings so so and so uh, in life. 
And I said, you know, when my dad died, I said, I, you know, curse God out, you know, literally told him to F off numerous times. And I said, with this, with, you know, my brother-in-law passing away at such a young age, as I said, I just, whenever I get down and when I deal with the death in the family, I said, I go to Psalms 88. And she's like, what does Psalm 88 say? And I pulled it up on my phone and just read it to her. And I said, this is the, literally to me is the, the most darkest, most, you know, we, we talk about like the dark night of the soul. And I said, this for me gave me solace because it was literally as a person of faith saying, where are you, God? Where are you? Like you care more about other people than you care about me. And just seeing her like almost look like she was petrified of like, I was saying that and she's like, I've never heard this. I, what you're saying. I've never heard this and it just made me step back and I'm like, this is another reason why I'm not evangelical because it's like this stuff is in here in the Bible to help us live life in a better way. And so often it's like so many Christians, so many evangelical Christians, it's like my faith is what sustains me. My faith is what grounds me. My faith is this. And then when they go through a shitty situation like death or divorce or whatever, they're like, well, I don't know where I can search to. And I'm like, go to Ecclesiastes, go to Lamentations, go to the Psalms. So, so what you're saying there. is your, your North Central education is paying off. In certain aspects, <laughs> certain aspects, Tim, my education. Well, I think it's, it's the wisdom literature. And I would say, if I can be honest, you know, with you kind of turning me on to that, to the understanding of like, this is wisdom literature and there's a lot of good stuff in here has helped me. You know, I've helped my wife. I've helped my, you know, other relatives when they go through this where I'm like, yes, this sucks. But as someone who still has an affinity and appreciation for Jesus, I'm like, when you go through shit, you can actually find stuff in the Bible that will not take away your pain. Because nowhere in the Bible does it ever say, oh, you know, you go through a terrible thing, then you're not going to feel any, you know, consequences of anything. But it just it, it just shocked me. You know, when I was talking to someone who's went to went to college and had a lot of the same classes that I did, and then they were like, "I didn't even know that was in the Bible." Yeah. And then I'm like, "In your ministers." Yeah. And so, what what happens when people in your church come up to you and they're like, "My son died," my you know, my husband died, and they're just like, "Well, we don't know why this happened." And it's like, "Well, yeah, actually, in Scripture it says we're all born and we all die." And but like you said in Ecclesiastes. But it more or less says, but live this moment, live your life to the best of you know of your abilities. Right. Yeah. And I think again, I think that's where the deconstruction piece is so important because we have to we have to get through the the hard part of saying either I believed or I was part of a system that believed a particular way and I no longer believe that. But ultimately, I hope that we aren't stopping there, but mm-hmm. that we are going. And that's what, you know, wisdom literature, especially Ecclesiastes, but all of wisdom literature and not just, not just the Hebrew tradition. You know, you've got the Hebrew tradition and then you've got in the New Testament, James, but you've got the Buddhist uh, wisdom tradition, which is really big and really important in the Islamic uh, wisdom tradition, which um, is is an important part of the Islamic tradition. It's all about 
when you face these hard times, what does it mean to be authentic? That's my word. And being authentic in our life and being honest and then looking for how do I be consistent with whatever values and, and, um, character things I want to have. And we, we might all land in different places on those. And that's where, you know, good conversation can take place. Mm-hmm. But if I don't know what the good life is for me, it's pretty, it's in some ways deconstructing myself into unhappiness ultimately isn't a great idea either. I think I have it. I don't think I have it up at the moment, but I have this a saying that I had up for a while um, from the Dalai Lama, and he he often talks about how our biggest goal as humans is to search is to be happy. We we want happiness more than anything else, and I think I think he I don't know if I like think that's the final thing, right, but right. but I think he's on to something because he'll say, you know, the reason why we want to be successful is because it really is supposed to make us happy, or the reason why we want to have good kids is because it makes us happy, or we want to be rich because it makes us happy. And so he said, you know, happiness is really the ultimate goal. And he said the the challenge as humans is for us to figure out how to be happy, what, what makes me as an individual happy. And I think that's, there's a lot of wisdom in that idea that Ultimately, if I, you know, I'm really rich, which I'm not because I'm a teacher, but (laughs) if I were able to become really rich, I probably wouldn't be happy because to me, those things aren't what I value. So I should just, you know, why am I trying to think that that's what I want when it isn't? And, and so that's where that wisdom literature comes in. And I think for a lot of, a lot of folks who are in that deconstruction process, we, I know I'm guilty of this, so I'm not saying, you know, anything that I haven't struggled with for myself. It's we, there's that temptation to sort of sit in the unhappy place and there's value in that. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of value in pointing that out and helping others see that and, and bringing people along on the journey. But at a certain point, I hope we, as you know, as a deconstructed community, can start to reconstruct something when it comes to happiness. And I suspect this is just me. I suspect it'll probably look different for most of us. Like no two of us are going to be the same because as humans, we're all we're all different, and we have different experiences and different values and different drives. And so for one person being a workaholic is what makes them happy. And so let's, that's okay. And for others, you know, maybe sitting in a library and reading all day is what makes them happy. So it's less about, it's less about what happiness is for everyone and more about what makes you happy and what allows you to be a contributing member to the community in positive ways. That's good. I think that's a good stopping point. Um, because we could probably talk all day. Yep. Um, I just want to say thank you, Tim, for uh, I've been wanting to do this for a hot minute, and I think you know finally our times have aligned. So thank you. I, I say this to all my guests, and I'm really serious. Would you ever want to do come back for another interview sometime in the future? Yeah, probably. Sweet. Yeah, yeah thanks for having me. It's yeah. been fun. Uh, thank you. Um, yeah, it's free, guys. All that Old Testament Bible knowledge, <laughs> I tell you. If you guys think I'm smart, I get it from Tim. So uh, well, I don't know about that. But. <laughs> yeah, just just take it. Just All right, take it. I'll take it. No, so um, thanks, everyone, for listening. 
as always, uh, when this is up, subscribe. Um, you know, we're just this small podcast here in the Twin Cities, and we do appreciate all the listens and the shares. So thank you, and um, have a great day, everyone. Bye. Thanks for being part of our conversation. To continue the conversation, find us on social media at SacredMN.